I'm Nevin, and I'm cooking up a podcast. Each week, talking to people about food and cooking, making some recipes, going on some adventures, making videos, and sharing it all at nevintaylorcooks.com. This week, I talk with Josh Pollan and Mike Nolden from Blanche and Shock in London. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning back in. It's been a while since a new episode has come out. Um, I've been super busy traveling and working a ton in restaurants, but hopefully getting back on it. Got a lot of cool stuff in the works. Um, Some really cool episodes coming down the pipeline and some interesting projects I got going on. So this week, one cool thing about all this traveling was that I get to connect and meet so many new people doing interesting stuff. And while I was in London, I got connected with Mike and Josh who run Blanche and Shock. It's a small company that they started and they aim to work creatively with food in all sorts of different contexts. They do consulting projects, they um, you know, do all sorts of cool research and come up with menus and develop things that um, have an interesting point of view. One of the most inspiring things that I got kind of out of this talk with them, the conversation and going to their studio, seeing what they're up to, all kinds of weird little things they're working on. They got fermentation projects going all over the kitchen and all sorts of native dried herbs, which we get into a little bit and seeds and um, all sorts of stuff like that. But they've found a way to take their time kind of like they found a way to hit pause so within food and cooking everything moves so fast so when you're in a restaurant and you know you have to move fast and be super busy and they found a way to kind of like take a breath they get these projects in and they research deeply and they connect with people and they learn from people and you know doctors and all sorts of crazy stuff like the food historian, the national food historian for uh, England and all sorts of stuff like that. But anyway, they found a way to hit pause. They found a way to dive deep and learn and then ultimately create something new out of it and analyze things, whether it's looking at refrigeration, looking at the ways that the brain works or diving into what food in London looked like a thousand years ago and coming up with menus uh, that reflect what they've learned and that is creative and unique to them and their point of view. So it's just really cool and inspiring to interact with people who are doing things their own way, on their own terms, and doing something kind of wacky and doing wacky food. Like you may, some of the stuff may sound weird to you that they're into, but you know, it's just different. That's just what they're into. And that's super rad. So um, I just love that they've found a way to do it and make it their lives. They've been doing it for nine years and it's all that they do. You know, they have all sorts of different creative projects going on. But anyway, I'll let them tell you their story. This is me, Mike and Josh in their studio kitchen in London at Blanche and Shock.
my partner in crime, Josh Pollen, and we're in South London in Camberwell um, in our studio kitchen uh, where we prepare the majority of our projects. So Blanche and Shock is a kind of cooking practice, really. We make food for all sorts of different events and we also do research processes where we're investigating different things and translating them into food. Sometimes that's products, sometimes it's dinners. It can be all sorts of different forms. Um, and we also have a kitchen in South London that you can come and visit. And a couple of nights a month, we do a kind of open dinner here where people come along and uh, taste some of the things that we've been working on, um, seasonal foods that are kind of capturing our imagination uh, at any one time. Um, tiny kind of things, really intimate for about 16 people, um, where we do a menu of around five or six courses and a drinks pairing that goes along with that. And that's a way of just presenting uh, the kind of things that we're working on from month to month, interesting new recipes um, and seasonal food. I'm Josh and I'm from Blanche and Shock and I started this business with Mike about nine years ago, coming up to nine years ago. And... Um, yeah, and we're, we're, I guess we sometimes describe ourselves as uh, sort of amateur chefs or amateur scientists or amateur historians or a version of all of these things. And somehow we pull that together into a practice, which involves research and development and keeping abreast of kind of old classical things in British cookery, as well as uh, what some of the kind of like the fanciest chefs in the world are doing in different places that we haven't been to. Um, so yeah, trying to kind of keep abreast of the food world and in the modern food world and pour it through this sort of filter of both of our backgrounds and where we come from and, um, and things that interest us, which yeah. sort of go beyond food sometimes and into other industries. Right, digging deep on something. It could be a soda that you're researching or... Yeah, so um, sometimes we have... Um, we have our own projects that we're working on and sometimes people come to us to commission um, new menus or new products. So there's usually some other aspect that sits alongside the food that we're working on, I guess. Um, and one thing that we've done a lot of over the last nearly decade is working kind of collaboratively with people from different practices or different backgrounds, um, drawing on their uh, expertise and knowledge and then trying to sometimes illustrate those ideas through food. Um, so the menus become a kind of um, a kind of way of communicating a set of ideas, I guess, as well as a nice experience where you're sitting down and hopefully eating delicious food. Yeah, and collaborating yeah. and being inspired by other people's work. Very much, yeah. So, I mean, I think some of that comes from uh, neither of us having a pure kind of culinary background. Um, neither of us are trained chefs, either in terms of like cooking school or in restaurants. Uh, although certainly Josh has got some more kind of restaurant experience and I've got some kind of drinks uh, business experience, but neither of us would say that we're kind of fully trained in that kind of route. We've learned a lot over the last uh, decade just from uh, from other people around us rather more than from kind of top down education I guess yeah so it makes us I think kind of curious and hopefully pour us to lots of ideas from other influences okay so nine years ago how did this start like so you you weren't in restaurants or you're not no um, we weren't at all were we yeah I was well, studying I was, at art school and you were well I was working bread I was, <laughs> I was I was working in a couple of wine shops at that point um, but I was way more into music at that time for sure I've always kind of had these two uh, interests that have kind of woven in and out of each other and sometimes certainly like about 10 years ago I was really wanting to be doing music above all um, and we kind of met in that 
sort of space more so Josh was taking photo photographs um, and I was drumming and we had this group of people around us where we were all putting on art events and music events um, both in London and up in Edinburgh as well and we just began to realize from knowing each other a little longer that there's a big interest in food and drink that we had in common that we could probably do something with alongside the other creative stuff that we were interested in um and slowly that turned into a sort of few events and people started asking us to cook for them do little dinners mostly just private things um and eventually this was also along with another good friend of ours uh, amy houston um who's also still working in food and drink but not at the moment working with us um and we just slowly turned it into a real thing i guess but it was it was never really intended to be a business from the beginning or intended to be a catering company or intended to be a restaurant. It just grew from from this kind of uh, seed of what can you do thinking creatively about food? What can you do if you consider cooking to be a practice, I guess? Right. A practice in that kind of like music or art. Yeah. Like I say, uh, by which, to some extent, I think we would mean it's not always about just the end point it's not always about the like the plate of food that you get at the end it's about the process it's about research it's about a kind of journey um and the that's a i suppose to some extent quite a luxurious thing because most of the time you have to be very focused on this final product and i guess we tried to create something where there was a little bit more space in what we could do to be exploring yeah let's spend a little more time doing the learning digging and yeah because you had to learn a lot along the way i'm sure of what it took to to pull off events and parties and stuff like that but none of it under the confines of a restaurant which in many ways is a sort of blessing and a curse means that we didn't really have a sort of structure that a restaurant would have for planning these things but it meant we could sort of do anything we wanted for quite a long time Um, you know we didn't have service times we didn't have like a head chef or the bank asking for us to stuff it was kind of like there's a certain amount of creative freedom that we've had which means that we can look beyond the final plate of food up to a point we can look, look at the process of food and the world of food and food systems way earlier in its life than just how it ends up in a restaurant. Yeah. For us, it's fascinating. It means meeting a farmer or uh, going and foraging and learning how to sort of grow your own vegetables, you know, things like this. Yeah. Not that we do all that stuff now, but we, we have an interest in everything that everything that surrounds everything beyond the walls of the restaurant, you know? Yeah. Um, also, I guess it's, it's worth saying that when we started... Um, there was, you know, it was kind of the beginning of this kind of like food revolution. It's such a naff word, but, but like there was a huge resurgence of interest in food. And certainly when we first started coming up, it was like the, everybody was talking about people like Heston Blumenthal and uh, El Bulli and stuff like this, like people changing the forms of things. So for us, it was very exciting to get into this sort of new world and discover that people were, sh- that there was a huge shakeup happening where like form and aesthetics were being like vastly changed from the way they were before. And in a way it was a perfect time for us to come in with our weird ideas and sort of try and fit into this world because it was all in flux. And like over the last 10 years, that's kind of, that's turned, it's gone in different directions anyway. But at the time it was very much like this watershed between the way that cooking was, the way that chefs were and restaurants were into this kind of slightly new format that we all talk about. Yeah, sure. There is this, so I suppose sometimes we see bits of that in some of the work we do now um, in one particular project called Edible Cinema uh, where you eat along with the film so you have a series of uh, little bites of food and drinks um, and they're timed to moments in a film 
and the film. Sometimes we have some choice of the film. Sometimes we don't. It depends really on kind of um, who's commissioned that or um, or how it works. Um, I should also say it's it's a collaboration with Tea Time Production. Um, who's uh, that's Polly Batten who's one of the people who started the whole idea so we weren't even the first chefs on this but it um, it's still it's happening at the moment in a few different places and if the film itself has an element of kind of disgust then the food kind of needs to play along to this so you're putting people in a position where they won't always immediately kind of enjoy from in a gastronomic sense the stuff that they're eating and that's quite an unsettling position for us as cooks I think it's worth going there but we we feel we always have to kind of reevaluate this every time it happens yeah what's an example of one of those Um, those times do you know talk about perfume I think that's probably the most successful the most successful gross project we've done probably or one of them anyway yeah Mm. we went to in Denmark a couple of years ago we did oh no last year in fact we did um, we did food to match the film Perfume by um who even made the film Perfume? I can't remember anymore, but it's based on the, the Patrick Siskin book. Um, for sure. So, uh, yeah, a film called Perfume based on Patrick Siskin's book, which is, a, without sort of giving it away too much for anybody who might want to read it, is kind of about like the body and the sense of the body and the world of perfumery in kind of 18th century France. But it's, it's, a, it's a very sort of colorful film. It sort of gives off the impression of disgust quite a lot. A lot of things that you, if you were challenged with eating something that matched the film, you'd be pretty weirded out by. Um, and it was, you know, it was quite weird. So we had uh, one scene in which you were, uh, your perception was that you were being asked to eat a piece of the leg of a young girl that had been murdered in the film. So it was that kind of thing. So you're sitting there yeah. in the dark and you've got this thing on, you can't really see it because you're in the cinema with the lights down someone raises up a thing you're looking at the screen and there's like a dead body on it and then you open a little pot and there's a thing that looks a bit like a piece of dead body and obviously like it's arguable whether it tastes like a piece of dead body but certainly like <laughs> once you've been told this it's in your head yeah. and you kind of have to eat that um, yeah. because you've come along to this thing and by then you've, you've, you've already shown that you're kind of interested in these weird experiences and challenges and stuff yeah. but people came out of that cinema at the end of and that was one of eight things of which probably three of them were pretty weird far out things where you had to sort of spend your discipline believe quite a lot and people looked really shell-shocked when they came out of that cinema and there were maybe 500 of them over the three or four nights that we did so it was like we you know half a thousand people we kind of freaked out in Denmark and that sounds pretty heavy metal it's pretty but (laughs) it's pretty cool but the the sensory experience being the like using food to tap into a new experience. Yeah, yeah, for more, sure. More dimensional experience. Yeah. Or using cinema to tap into a new experience of looking at food, which right, can be yeah. looked at as well. Right, no, for sure. Just either, either way, making a more whole sensory experience. I was going to say like a richer experience. It's certainly rich in some ways, but also kind of a weird experience. Or sort of enhanced, because I think we also always say that, you know, food is... Uh, food pretty much always touches all the senses anyway I think uh, it's it's like uh, everyone who is placing so much emphasis on on these what are so-called multi-sensory experiences sometimes seem to be doing food an injustice by uh, not focusing on the fact that it already is a, a, a really multi-sensory experience I guess um, so no I mean we we think food in in its pure sort of uh, serving has got a kind of uh, huge potential anyway do you know what I mean yeah like a um, carrot is multi-sensory already like it doesn't yeah. really necessarily need to be described as such if you see a picture of a carrot and eat a carrot yeah. it's 
you're already there you're already there right but then the world uh, the world of food is sort of allowed for these different permutations of how people experience food and how people want to experience food and their expectation and it's yeah. yeah But I guess, you know, and we keep, we, we do keep working in this cinematic idiom, but what's fr sort of frightening is that you can, uh, you can choose this ingredient and cook it really beautifully and, you know, you, maybe uh, you confit something and there's this beautiful flavor of garlic and it's perfectly cooked and the texture is amazing and it smells beautiful. But if you're being told it's a piece of a dead body, then it's <laughs> always going to be disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is this strange kind of double bind, this masochistic thing that we, we keep doing with this project anyway. But it works so much better than when the film is really kind of vanilla and, um, it, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah it definitely. will definitely invoke some reactions yeah. for sure <laughs> yeah and exactly. also it's a very unique and privileged position to be able to make something disgusting on commission for 100%. a guest to eat who's paid yeah. to eat it like I don't think there are many chefs who get to do that yeah. <laughs> if that can be considered a cool thing to do but in some ways yeah. it is it still has to taste really good yeah. even if yeah. the person doesn't eat it because the idea is too disgusting mostly so the food the food is never disgusting it's more the it's the association yeah I must point out that we do on these projects maybe twice a year and the rest yeah. of the time we try and make stuff that totally isn't like that but it is an interesting it's an interesting sort of like distillation of perception and expectation and experience and all of these things that have sort of become PR terms they're all true of the scenario as well um, and it is interesting but yeah we certainly try and make really nice like pretty aesthetic food that you can see the rest of the time of the year that's like served the temperature we want it you know what are some other um i guess projects that stick out over the last nine years that may have been pivotal into getting you into the space that you're in now or interesting projects that you had where you could really spend time and dive deep on something and learn something my vote is always brain banquet yeah. which is one of the most fascinating projects we did we um there was a, a charity out in the east end called headway east and they're a charity who um spend a lot of time with people who've had brain injuries for one reason or another uh not so much rehabilitating but having activities to do with them they have a visitor center um and they They, uh, along with uh, the work, no, with Guerrilla Science, who are uh, an arts organization who make kind of accessible science projects, um, hired us to do a project based on the brain. Um, called Brain Banquet um, and it wasn't sort of so much based on the brain as, as the idea of kind of neurology and all of the permutations of things that can happen to your brain if you have a horrible accident or if you're, one of your senses is kind of knocked out and replaced by another one or you have synesthesia lots of the kind of connections that can happen in, in, in brains literally um, and so they and they hired a bunker like a World War II bunker and they dressed it up kind of like a brain it had loads of different rooms that were all connected and you know the analogy was this was a you were kind of in a brain and there were arts installations uh, and sort of sound installations and colorways and all kinds of stuff that were kind of affecting the experience um, and then we so what we did in, the, in advance of the project was spend maybe five or six sessions we went and we hung out with the people in the charity We hung out with the chefs who look after their, you know, cook their lunch. But we hung out with a lot of the people who, you know, would, would kind of tell us about their their perception of food and, and, and memory and things like smell and like, you know, people who maybe have had their sense of smell knocked out but have memories connected to different senses or for whom textures of foods have suddenly become like different or, or challenging or things that they used to love, they hated. All these kind of different things that could happen when the wires get kind of crossed. Um, and so the, and, and the, the, the summation of this was to do a dinner over three nights for people which was inspired by 
what we learned from these these folks and what we had worked out ourselves and we have we had a, a, a fascinating chat with a neurosurgeon who explained a lot of the kind of the nitty-gritty of cutting open brains and kind of like how this works and so we kind of looked at it from loads of angles which gave us a rich kind of bit of research to do in advance um, and then we did this dinner and it had six courses um, and one course was based on the perception of color in food so we served a white course that was lit for the first half of the course in blue light and then was lit in green light the idea being that the blue light would put you off but green light looked completely familiar and so like just the, the color of things would, yeah, would vastly yeah. interact with how you ate the food uh, one was based on this notion of brain food of kind of like top 10 lists of things that help your brain so we did a course based on that uh, the main course we cooked a brain which was quite a weird thing for quite a lot of the people because this wasn't simply a, a gastronomic experience but was a something to do with like actual people's brains so it felt a little bit strange but it also felt like a really nice thing to be able to cook a load of brains to people who would otherwise not eat a brain and who would be sort of alerted to the fact that this is a, a, a food stuff eaten by a lot of people in the world without being squeamish about it but of course it was quite squeamish for them um, and it was just a fascinating project because each course fitted into a different idea of what had come up from the yeah. research. The color um, perception and yeah. texture stuff seems really interesting. Yeah, it was cool. Like Mike, uh, Mike did a course based on the idea that most of uh, a straw poll of the of the people who hung out in the, the visitor center every day were asked what their favorite meal that was cooked from them during the week, and they all said ham, egg, and chips, which is just something that they did on like Wednesdays or whatever. And so Mike did a course where the ham and the egg and the chips had all changed texture entirely. So he did a broth of ham and there was a, a slow poached egg yolk in the middle of it and then a huge potato crisp on the side and the idea was really I think just to sort of describe their favorite food through with the slight textural changes that one might have expected from what some of them said had happened to them. Yeah, yeah. there were a lot of people who um, visited the charity who basically had no sense of smell um, at least in the short to medium term and so texture becomes so much more um, of a significant thing in kind of determining the difference between the things you're eating and then you take pleasure particularly from that textual difference so it seemed like a good idea to certainly look predominantly at texture over and above everything else for a while yeah I mean, another one was refrigerators. You know, we talked about fridges. And I mean, if you could take all of the same things we said about brains, you could pretty much attach most of them to fridges as well. It becomes an enormous subject once you get like deep into the concept of refrigeration. And then suddenly it's a huge wealth of knowledge can come out from it. And uh, fascinating things that have to do with the way that food works now, food distribution, the cold cycle, and on and on and on it goes. There's basically a story to be found in almost everything that could be linked back to food somehow, in some way. Uh, which is great for us. So what was the refrigeration project? The idea was um, to think about the history of refrigeration and how it's affected what we eat, really. Um, and it ended up turning into, I guess, a five-course meal that moved chronologically from thinking about time where there's no in, uh, industrial or certainly domestic particularly domestic refrigeration through to trying to put together dishes that are only really possible because of the kind of uh, because of the modern control that we have over temperature really. modern convenience exactly of yeah, yeah. Um, and then the possibility of serving lots of things at different temperatures on the plate really yeah and and also I guess asking the question of you know are we better off like this and I think pretty much most people would think that we are but for a long time there are a lot of practices that were beginning to be lost and, you know, leads quite nicely into thinking about the uh, current, I don't want to call it trend, but certainly, you know, the current excitement around fermentation um, because 
Well, I mean, it actually even plays out in this kitchen that we have here, really. We have a tiny uh, domestic freezer that's full, you know, to the gunnels with things. And every time we need to chill something or, you know, freeze some, freeze something down for... Uh, we did a dessert here last week that had an elderflower shaved ice, this beautiful Japanese um, ice shaver that we've got. It's like, oh, we've got to make some space in here. And we think about how easy it is to put our leftovers into the freezer but we're trying to stop doing this and make sure that we ferment them instead because then you've got something that uh, is more shelf, shelf literally <laughs> yeah shelf stable yeah um so you know and then we can get the things that we really need to put in the freezer like ice cream <laughs> yeah. um yeah so actually uh, not seeing that as a crutch anymore but seeing it as a tool i guess and a potential to be, uh, you know, it's not limiting, it's expanding. Yeah, you're absolutely. expanding what it is that you're doing by analyzing it and I guess being aware of it. Yeah, Something definitely. Something it allowed you to like self-analyze your, even in your own kitchen, this project. So that's like the full, you know, yeah. you get it. And For then sure. that's amazing. And actually, you know, we, I mean, the next thing is to clear out a th- fully a third of this freezer. It's got egg whites in and ferment those uh, with koji into uh, like an, an amino sauce. Um, so yeah, and you know, we would only really even begin to know that that's a possibility from the people that we talk to and the people that we kind of follow. So yeah, um, you can go full circle from uh, uh, from one project to another. Really, I feel like we really just sort of curate an enormous set of ever-changing ingredients and just lend them out for various things every now and then. Now that we have our space where there's a cycle of ingredients, where it's like it might go from the fridge to the freezer, it might have to suddenly come out and spend two years fermenting on a shelf. Like, we're just dealing with hundreds of tubs of kind of weird stuff that every now and then we just like well, put it a lot of a kitchens job. feel like that, don't they? It's just yeah, this chaotic exactly. kind of movement and translation of ingredients from one thing to another and That's then, it. you know, they get eaten or they get changed. Yeah, or, and know. the leftovers become something else and that becomes something else and um, it's an interesting cycle to get into, I suppose. But, you know, if thinking about the fridge it opened up like so many of these thoughts yeah about, like, that all started actually, by analyzing the your current use of refrigeration exactly and how it affects it your kitchen it sounds so boring when you say it and then you yeah. realize that actually it covers so much of our lives so yeah the first dish from the dinner at the welcome collection about the history of refrigeration had seen no refrigeration at all that was the point of it because that's extremely rare even with things that don't for safety's sake need to be in the fridge for very long if you've got an industrial supply chain pretty much everything is refrigerated um, so we went to this wonderful growing space uh, called Loughborough Farm near Brixton down the road from us and um, work with them uh, to have a load of beautiful salad ingredients uh, ready for those two days of that dinner um, including lots of lovely flowers and tomatoes and spicier leaves um, and we put those together into a salad but they'd never seen the fridge or um, a fridge van or, or a fridge any... van yeah or anything and and it seems like such, it is such a simple thing but it's extremely rare you know and it was a luxury wasn't it it was yeah, like a salad that has really, come out of the ground yeah. in London you Super, don't really get that like, and it was very fresh like it wasn't exactly. like wilted no yeah. exactly it was still in, in perfect nick when it hit the plate which was great yeah. but and then that meant harvesting each morning um, and so you can see that probably in energy terms that's not as sustainable as doing one harvest and then and then refrigerating everything down and doing that every few days um, but it's worth going through this process at least on a small scale to look at the differences between these things and think like okay we're sacrificing something here but we're gaining sustainability what does this mean when is it practical for someone to not use a fridge when is it way more practical to use it um and yeah dinners like this allow us to kind of look at these things and hopefully also then create conversation 
for the people who come along to them. So with this dinner and with some of the dinners that we do, but by no, by no means all, uh, we, when one of us would come out before the dish is served and just talk about the thought process behind it. And then, um, that hopefully leads people to have a bit of a think about it too. Yeah. Those are kind of two projects that really like hit a lot of, a lot of interesting sort of touch points that we never really would have predicted or experienced if we weren't being able to do these kind of projects, I guess. We've done a few sort of historical projects with theatre involved that have been quite rewarding. Um, I guess the feast in Hastings we did uh, for um, 950th anniversary of uh, 1066, the uh, landings, um, William the Conqueror coming over from France, invading us. Um, And it seemed like a kind of timely theatre show. Um, It was looking at influences from beyond one's shores and uh, I don't know, the kind of obvious uh, uncertainty it gives some people and the massive kind of advantages that it gives society to have lots of outside influences and particularly kind of timely when everything is getting shaken up in our end of the European Union and uh, yeah it was very interesting but it, uh, from a culinary point of view allowed us to do um, some research into Saxon food um, and what people would have been eating in about the year 1000 um, <laughs> and uh, that was a lovely process but trying to frame a menu like in these terms when you're like you're dealing with something that was more than a thousand years ago, you're like, what food did exist here? What, what did this, what did this field that I'm standing in, what did it look like? Did it look like this? Are these wild foods that are here, have they, have they in so-called invaded our country since then? Like, could they have existed back then? What would you have eaten if you were a Roman army invading a country or a Norman army or like whatever it was? And those mm-hmm. things become really fascinating because you're like, yeah. the limitations yeah. imposed on you yeah, become really interesting. Constraints. And Josh tried to translate the menu into Middle English, yeah. uh, which went quite well, I it's thought. It's actually easier than I you thought. Know, I mean, I, I'm, some people would no probably... One us. No, <laughs> um. but we you know we got to go and meet the one of the people who who um uh, the royal food historian who looks after all the, the royal palace's kitchens just to sort of find out from him what, like what his take on what saxon food was like which is you know the sort of thing that the, the sort of experience that is yeah it comes that's up gold. for us every yeah. now and i mean that's it that's the whole that's it yeah. 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 yeah and so yeah mark meltonville very helpful um but it's not an era that in some ways a huge amount is known about because there's not a lot of existing writing of um, certainly I don't think any pretty much any cookbooks no big food like no that. cookbook authors no, right but there is I mean there's a brilliant uh, book by Anne Hagen um, Anglo-Saxon Food and Drink that uh, is very much a scholarly work that goes through all the available sources we just point out we don't try and do that many projects that are about like nationalism or uh, our position within the European Absolutely. Union it just so happened that this Hastings <laughs> yeah. project yeah. came up about the same kind of time but yeah. it's it not to make any comment on necessarily politically motivated yeah, 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 yeah. no but it does not give us but. pause for thought because I think we've spent a lot of the last decade thinking British food what's British food you know what are British ingredients what, what does it mean to cook to our place and we still have this big question and especially in regards to the city but setting that aside do we want to just be serving British food I mean you know what does that and say and why why and, should you know, we serve any British food yeah. is it like food miles we're worried about is it provenance is it spreading the economy is it yeah. like it's not about xenophobia <laughs> you know which is, yeah. it could come across as you say right. just making as British wanting food. to keep it yeah um, but these, okay. are, these are all concerns that we, you know, we have. So what are some of those things? Like what I read on your website that you try and uh, use the British palate as a guiding force through some of the things that you do. Um, so what are some of those things that you deem specifically British? Um, I mean, things we love particularly, hogweed, um, 
which we have the seeds particularly here. Um, we'll grab some of these things in a minute. Um, melilot, Melilotus officinalis, um, also called sweet clover. Um, bog myrtle, uh, Mirica gale. Um, what else do we have here particularly? Well, seaweeds, um, which are used all over the world, of course, but um, there are particular associations here with, with different seaweeds. I guess it's similar to if you came to us and said, you know, sarsaparilla and wintergreen, you know, things like that that we just simply don't have here. So those, you know, it'd be exactly the same. I suppose this taps into our so thing of foraging. So these would be kind of like in the realm of things that grow wild here that you guys are going out and foraging yeah, for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not like commercially viable stuff. I mean, some some of these things come from for like professional foragers and yeah. some of them we've learned to forage ourselves. So over the last kind of few years, we've, we've worked out that we can go and pick some of the stuff ourselves and some of we can't but like once you get an interest in foraging you start to get an interest in what grows in your country what's yeah. available to you because it becomes easier to go and pick a thing than to import it from somewhere else yeah. and then you get into realizing that there are equivalents of a lot of things you know like there's uh, we don't grow any chilies natively here but we have shitloads of mustards right. and like you start to realize that once you break things down into their kind of chemical parts but I'm also just looking at this like pot of sweet woodruff here and thinking that that is something that is absolutely cultivated but it's cultivated as a kind of aromatic cover plant for people's gardens and people don't normally think about eating it but it's got the most beautiful aroma on the other hand it costs yeah. what sort of 100 quid a kilo if you buy it from somebody who commercially yeah. gathers this yeah. stuff which yeah. is a weird thing to do anyway so it's both completely free and very expensive we make oils out of quite a lot of these things you know um, and we need to we quite often need to work out whether the oil will become bitter and we need to get help from people who know more about the science of these things to work out how to use these things right. but this is all part of the kind of like the emergent process of teaching ourselves and trying to learn from others how how we can use all these things whether they should be eaten what is the what are the limits of edibility yeah in what form can you manipulate yeah, it yeah exactly. what, in what form is it best yeah exactly. and, how and should we do it at all like is it actually going to impact people who who also want to go and forage is it going to make people sick is it you know hardwood is things. intense it's intense right <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's very, really good. i mean it's an interesting flavor it i've never away. but it's it sort of a bit like some things and it's sort of unlike them mm -hmm. or it's just its own thing it's know. its own thing yeah but, but it's um you can pick it in anywhere in this country most of the year all the way through the autumn and I've seen on like maybe three other menus ever and it's like it doesn't mean that we're like we're really special for using it but it's just like it is out there it should be considered a spice we use it as a spice it's one of maybe 20 things that we consider that could be a spice in the same way that a black onion seed or a clove could be and yeah. don't see why they aren't you know yeah well Alexander's seeds here are extremely difficult I think to work with um be you may want to chew on I'm going to get okay. you chew something it, to, put, to spit it into if you want it. My, after the hogweed, um, <laughs> there's a little tingle going on right now. Yeah, there might well be. Yeah. Um, there are two kinds of hogweed that grow in this country. One of them is phytotoxic and can leave you with really blistery burns. And the other one, which is this one, is uh, doesn't have quite the same properties. So we have the right one. Um, <laughs> I trust but, you. but equally, you know, these are, these are products from the wild. They haven't been pasteurized. They're, they're just picked. Yeah. So a lot of time we'll process them or do, you know dry them or whatever. So Alexander's has this kind of, I, I associate it with sort of incense, which I guess is a very broad church, but um, the smell, <laughs> almost a pun, the kind of, the smell of, uh, of old churches. Um, it's a really interesting aroma, but it's very intense and needs a lot of kind of careful handling. And you can totally just chew on the seeds as you are, but you may find that you don't want to actually swallow the whole thing yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Oh, wow. But these are yeah. This is the kind of exploration that we that we we try and test on ourselves. So this is what you would say. Stuff like this is like 
British. Like this is the British palate. Well, this is this is Middle Eastern, right? So Alexander Caesar brought by either Alexander the Great or the Romans. I can't it remember really which one. It depends on where you put your kind of goalposts, doesn't it? It's like. I uh, went to a great talk by a group called Cooking Sections and they talked about different periods of invasiveness, <laughs> if you'd like. Um, yeah. When it was you know, brought here, how it was exactly. brought here, how it gets and introduced. So, you know, yeah. If something has been here for 2,000 years and is associated with the cuisine of that country, then does that mean that, you know, it's obviously not literally native, but is it of here now? It probably is, really. You know. Also, are cloves British? Because we've had them for half a century, half a millennium. I guess they could be considered British. They're in all our Christmas food. But they also come from the other side of the planet. Exactly. It's weird. Yeah. Um, but so Alexander's we, we are, are both old and also not very much used. Alexander's leaves are, you can use the roots, the stems, the flowers, the buds, everything. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're an entire subject unto themselves, which yeah. is kind of fascinating. Totally. So I guess, you know, we think about things that definitely grow here comfortably, um, you know, without enormous amounts of kind of energy in order to produce them certainly things that grow comfortably wild it just makes sense to cook with things that are around you really and there was maybe a time when we would more often try to use something like cider vinegar than lemon juice but it's not like lemons come from very far away so also we're in london and it's it's very you know it's kind of a strange duality to sit here and be like oh we only cook things that are from britain but we live in the middle of a city that is completely made of other people's shit <laughs> by other people and it's like it's odd to reject all our of that. entire island is wonderfully made over thousands of years from other people's stuff so. but just i mean just this supplying our own menus is is entire subject in itself which we this is these are the questions we ask ourselves all the time and they 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 play very interestingly into the notions of history and place and geography and socioeconomic stuff like and we try not to overthink things too much but these are all like yeah these so are all most, part and parcel of the coming down to your sourcing probably most importantly in i guess in the context that we're talking about right now it's like where you're getting this stuff from how it's and it's also about the people as well which sometimes gets overlooked i think it's you know it's about the networks that you have around you so it matters to us kind of who we buy from and because you know you're supporting these people but actually also on on this kind of british palette thing something we've been thinking about quite a lot recently is different parts of plants so we have we're we're loving the um, aromas and flavors that we get from certain leaves like fig leaves or uh, blackcurrant leaves where okay not so much in the case of blackcurrants but with figs they don't ripen very well in this country even though you know the fruits do grow um, so then you look at what other part of the plant can you use and fig leaf's been this wonderful aroma that we've been working with. I'm aging some from my garden. It's going to be about another year and a half before it's got rid of its sap to be used as a smoking wood. Although we actually have a bag of fig wood over there that we bought. Um, but these things, you know, like if you can't get a fig, what can you get? Well, you can get shitloads of tree, yeah. loads of fig trees here, and you can smell them all the way through the, the, the yeah. summer. So we wanted to do dinners based just on the, just the like abstract notion of wood. Um, yeah, at some point we'll do something along those lines. This is like a pretty failure that Josh made. <laughs> it was it was completely pretty at one point. It's successful it's still, at one point. Bit, it has wabi sabi actually. It has the kind of beauty of the imperfect. <laughs> nice. I love um, it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, these are slices of which wood? Uh, Oregon pine. They were cut by a woodsman in Durham in the north of England. Awesome. On, on spec because we needed a bunch of slices of tree to make into plates because we couldn't find any really nice plates to serve this particular dinner from. So we made them and then we put them on a tiny plane and took them to the Scottish islands and served dinner off them. And now every single one of them is cracked to the center because neither of us are professional wood turners. Well, we kind of <laughs> knew at the time that they weren't 
weren't dried enough to be varnished. But yeah, we were in a bit of a hurry. Um, but it's, it's an example. Of it's just had like, a good you know, life, actually. They did get used a fair old bit. And now it's still, you know. But the thing is, if you can't get it, if you can't afford it, try and make it, you yeah, know. You can fill but no, that's a good example of scavenging, you know. Yeah. You can't afford a nice plate. Fuck yeah. it, make it. I love it. You know, I love that energy. <laughs> and then watch it break every year. You make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we and, try. Yeah, I like the the energy of the overall experience. Like talking about a wood dinner, or like a wood themed dinner. How you can use, how you can look at a tree in a new way. Precisely, and actually just using using wood itself as a, a directly as a flavor as well, rather than just for smoking over or as a surface to. Um, like cook on or present food on. So we've been playing around with uh, making non-alcoholic distillates of um, infusions with oak wood um, to do kind of analogues of whiskey without alcohol. Yeah. Things. Yeah. But also we can talk about any single subject for hours. So it's kind right. of like, yeah. we, we find the interesting and in everything, I suppose that could describe our business. Um, so I have some questions. It's three questions. So you can answer, answer, and then I'll ask the next one. What's the most memorable thing that someone has cooked for you recently. It could be any, it could be a restaurant, or it could be something that uh, someone's home. Anything that struck you. I, someone prepared for me something the other day that won't sound very, very exciting to your readership, but which was some labneh on toast with tomatoes, and it was just the scenario in which I was given it was absolutely perfect, exactly yeah. what I needed. It's not the most sexy answer in the world, but like, what was it? What was the like a strained strained yogurt? No, I mean, what was well. the situation that oh, the made situation it? The situation was it was a very very late night with a bunch of friends who were celebrating uh, and had been celebrating quite a while, and yeah. it was exactly at the point where like the difference between death and life was having something perfect to be given, and someone walked up to me with this thing, and it was just exceptionally perfect, yeah. and it stuck in my brain really really well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just tomatoes and cheese on toast. But like that was that was it. Sometimes the simplest things are the ones that are really tricky. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably other examples more recently, but um, I think like the the egg that my wife boiled for me the day that my mother died. It's that kind of thing, you know. Like yeah, those are. It's about the context so much, and I think this is true of, of the majority of things that you eat. The context makes it as much of a difference yeah what was the what is a memorable food from your childhood roast chicken what is it roast chicken roast chicken a whole roast chicken yeah bread sauce a very particularly english way of having roast chicken bread sauce my mum used to cook it all the time what's bread sauce Ah. Bread sauce is uh, it's beautiful. This is what we should have talked no, about. We talked about bread sauce food. in this heat now, unfortunately. But it's yeah. a sauce made of infusing you infuse milk with an onion that has been cut in half, studded with cloves, and there's a bay leaf and there's nutmeg or sometimes mace involved. You infuse the milk, you put into it old day old breadcrumbs, and you just stir it until it starts to set like a really fucked up porridge. For some reason, it just goes with roast chicken like you wouldn't believe it, and no one in the world who isn't English has ever heard of it or believes it's a real thing. That's my one. Um, for me, like my my paternal grandmother, uh, who did a lot of her own kind of preserving and um, and cooking and knew a lot about wild ingredients, I think as well. Even but yeah, before I ever even thought about any of this stuff, I guess. But um, she used to make the uh, uh, Christmas pudding each year, and so that's a mix that you would make a few months in advance and you'd have it on the counter for a couple of days maybe and everyone would come from the family to stir it and then you uh, steam it and it ages for a while before Christmas as well but putting that mixed together with her um, in her kitchen and you know being a tiny kid and using this hand cranked mincer to mince apples for it as well and cooling it the mincer later um, and yeah that's things amazing things like that yeah that's like, amazing yeah. that's really cool um, what is the most recent memorable thing that you have cooked for someone else 
We had a good uh, time at my house recently where a bunch of friends came over, all of whom are uh, involved in food in different ways, whether from science or not. And we had a bunch of game birds, so we, we, and we had a bunch of foie gras fat that somebody else had brought, and we had a bunch of stuff, and the four of us cooked in my kitchen. So it sort of answers your question, yeah. except that it wasn't just me cooking, but it was like, it very much was a, uh, we're all cooking for each other for the first time in ages, and that was yeah. very special. So we had roasted grouse, yeah. roasted grouse, we had leeks cooked in foie gras fat, we had... We had some really weird stuff. I can't quite oh, remember the menu. We had a lot but. of herbs from um, ooh, South America. From no, that Johnny yeah, brought dried herbs from Argentina. Yeah. It was just a very. It was a good collection Things of that, people and stuff yeah, put in amazing, a really yeah. odd scenario and then eaten together in my small kitchen. It was really good. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a cheating on the question, but like. Um, yeah, I think I, I'm t- I'm terrible because I I hardly ever make my wife a birthday cake um but this year she loves madeleines so this year i made uh madeleines for her um it was the first time i made madeleines they came out pretty nicely it was good uh, i was pleased with this and so was she and she <laughs> ate one and then uh, a few hours later they were all in a little bag in her rucksack and our cats got into the bag and pulled out the madeleines and savaged each and every one of them. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so you knew the idea was tight. Yeah, so like the whole family enjoyed the madeleines, um, but predominantly not my wife. Memorable because of destruction. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, I hope that we can stay in touch and find some ways to, uh, you know, talk and work and do something together for sure yeah it's a pleasure yeah you can find us on the internet our website is blancheandshock.com and our handle on almost every social media network is blancheandshock at blancheandshock and we love to hear from people look us up and keep the conversation alive yeah we're into it One thing I wanted to clarify, when they were talking about the brain banquet dinner that they did, they were calf brains that they cooked. We didn't really hash that out in the conversation, but it's not like human brains or anything crazy like that. They were calf brains. So people don't even freak out. Josh and Mike, thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with me and inspiring me. And hopefully your story inspires some other people to uh, think about food in a more open way or learn something dig into something get weird on some stuff you know whatever you're interested in and um yeah stay tuned happy to be back putting the podcast out again and i'm going to be putting out a lot more video content there's some new stuff up on my youtube channel about uh traveling in israel yeah lots of fun stuff going on uh loving what's going on and talking with people and engaging with food and yeah so please stay tuned thanks for listening